a leader's role is to in, insert a conversation that wouldn't happen without them. And those conversations can be conversations like, how could we love what we do even more around here? Let's talk about that today. Today's episode is very special for me, and I think probably a few people in my circumstances, similar circumstances today, might just feel a little bit starstruck perhaps, because today's guest is someone who has been featured on The Oprah Winfrey Show, Good Morning America, a PBS show, and in two major BBC documentaries which have been shown to over 30 million television viewers worldwide. He's the author of, I think at last count, seven books published by Hay House, uh, one of which was co-authored with Louise Hay. And he hosts a weekly radio show, which I always listen to, <laughs> for Hay House Radio, called Shift Happens, with an F. Now, I could use all of this time to simply talk about his work, but I want to briefly tell you who he is for me and then have him share some of his stories and wisdom with you. So he is someone for whom I feel an immense loving gratitude since his work has impacted me, my work, my relationships, my clients. Uh, it's impacted us all deeply in helping us understand love, happiness, understand spirituality and the truth of who we are actually and so many times in his workshops he's come out with these beautiful incredible one-liners that are just simply mind-blowing life-changing life-changing one-liners and having immersed myself in much of his work over the last I guess three or four years and attended a good few of his workshops it's it's not just his beautiful loving wisdom and understanding of love and happiness that I love about him but that he is such a warm regular guy demonstrating and embracing the experience of being human and if you want a sense of how much a regular guy he is actually just uh, scroll down to the bottom of the about page on his website and watch that video you'll see in about 12 seconds what I mean <laughs> now he's just somebody I love being in the room with to simply hang out with he could run a workshop on making toast and I'd want to be there so he is on the podcast today on the understanding that we don't talk about his team, West Ham United's numerous and crucial victories over my local football team, Ipswich Town. So, <laughs> on that basis, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Robert Holden as my guest today. Hello, Robert. Well, thank you for a very, very beautiful um, introduction. How gorgeous. I, it's very, very lovely of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, I want to explore with you today how a coach gets to talk about love and happiness particularly in corporations and organizations but first I want to ask a couple of questions really about you mm -hmm. and you know your journey perhaps so 
why love and happiness you know what what had you choose <laughs> love and happiness uh, whether that was a conscious choice to make a career a vocation um you know writing teaching and coaching around love and happiness yeah i think um i stumbled across them along the way you might say you know on my life journey um uh, everything really has to come back i think um freud would be very happy about this but I think it has to come back to mum and dad. <laughs> um, you know, I, I grew up in a in a little village in 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 Hampshire, uh, the south of England, and and it was a little village called Littleton. I'm <laughs> so very little, and um, basically we our family home was called Shadows, oh, wow. which. I mean, that's pretty big, isn't it? I mean, who would move into a family home called Shadows? I mean, honestly. And, you know, so, you know, fast forward 30 years and I'm teaching shadow psychology at an interfaith seminary. It all sort of adds up in in a strange sort of way. But um, the, the shadows in my family really were, well, a contrast to the amount of love that was also in my family. Um, I grew up in this little village with my lovely family, my my mum who I adored most of the time, and my dad who was my hero most of the time, and my younger brother who I loved most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But my mum experienced uh, recurring bouts of depression, and um, which was very painful and also very disorientating, Phil. Um, the disorientation was was around how the depression would happen without any warning. It would arrive. I often described it like as a guest. It would like it would move in unannounced, and it would leave when it was ready to leave. But we had no idea when that depression was going to lift and when it was ever going to go. So I think I felt very helpless about that. Um, and. And and then on top of all of that, my father, who was often the rock of the family, when when I was a teenager, it became really clear to us that he was drinking, and um, we'd find bottles of spirits in particular um, in the hedge, in the garden, you know, in the back of the car, in the sock drawer at home. I mean that sort of thing, and. And that was a huge shock to us. It was like, what? what? You know, we knew he liked to drink, but, you know, there are so many social opportunities to drink. I think we just didn't see it. Anyway, he um, eventually left home and um, and for the last 10 years of, of his life, um, he often lived homeless and it was right, very tough old situation. So with that background, Phil, I was somersaulted forward into a very intense inquiry, I felt anyway, into life. I mean, what's it all about? What's it all for? You know, I'm doing at that point what we would have called O levels and A levels and um, and thinking about what, what to do next with my life. But all the while, the two people I love the most are on the canvas gone out for the count um, pretty much so you know I, I was starting to ask some of those really big questions like what's life for and everything and if I fast forward a little bit I'd say really that you know I went and studied psychology uh, philosophy really to further my own understanding about life 
and and at the very least just to stall on getting a job <laughs> you know i just feel the idea of getting a job i it, i mean it was horrific you know to get a job that i didn't like i just couldn't imagine it to be really honest and um so i thought i'd much rather just study rather than you know delay what seemed to be the inevitable but i i enjoyed my psychology studies i enjoyed my philosophy studies and that led fundamentally to um looking at happiness and i think of the happiness project as my open letter to my mother um and then i created another project called success intelligence it was a, became a company in 2000 um and that is my open letter to my father and then right there sort of holding the two of them together is is love and the work on love and the work on love i think had to happen because i found that the more i talked with people about happiness the more we talked about love and the more i talked with people about success the more we talked about love so there was no way around it eventually phil you know it it, it everybody kept wanting to talk about love so <laughs> as did i actually and so then love became an an inquiry in its own right too beautiful yeah so it's kind of inevitable i think so i i i i i would never have foreseen that but it seems that often when you get to the truth about most things life relationships success abundance purpose happiness health it's hard to leave love out of any of that so in considering um yeah your journey in learning studying love and happiness um i wonder how like personally you can see that that's helped you build your businesses not you know in perhaps in the way that it's helped your clients perhaps we'll come on to that later but specifically for you you know how have you used love and happiness to to build your business and and perhaps overcome personal and business challenges yeah um well i think firstly with happiness um maybe it was just an ideal i was following maybe it was even a bit of naivety but i i i just felt that i wanted to enjoy what i did you know i just wanted to enjoy my life and enjoy my work and you know i think one of the things about you know having a family that's been where where the picture has been torn to pieces um in some ways the benefit of that is that there's nothing to preserve um i'm not trying to preserve a reputation i'm not trying to help the family look good you know i'm not i'm certainly not um going to follow in the footsteps of you know there was none of that so my family picture had completely smashed really so in a sense i think i was granted the license to get on with life in my own way um uh, now in some ways that was very disorientating because i didn't have much mentoring as such um but on the other side of it there was a great freedom there to say look um you know i i would like to live a life where you know i want to make sure that i that if i ever encounter depression myself i know what to do with that and with my father's alcoholism by the way it was clear to me that that was something excuse me something to do with meaninglessness 
a sense of meaninglessness um, and also a sense of carrying some old wounds. You know, my dad did serve in the World War too, and um, we only got to find out later in life how horrific that was because he wouldn't talk about it, not in, not until later. Um, so, you know, the, the desire to, to do something that I was happy about and that I loved seemed incredibly important to me. And I heard over and over again that that wasn't possible or practical or it's just not the way things are. But I really thought to myself, look, I, if I was really enjoying myself, what would I be doing? And if I really wanted a career based on something truly joyful, what would that be? And, and, and I followed that, I listened to that, I listened to what would, what would a, a, you know, a joyful career be. And when I broke that down more, I began to see that, that in a way that meant for me a career where I felt alive. So a sense of aliveness, like this brings me alive. I don't have to force myself out of bed in the morning to go and study about X, Y, and Z. I want to study about this. I want to go and talk to people about this. I want to write about it. Um, so a sense of aliveness, a sense of doing something that inspired me, that gave me a feeling like I was growing myself, you know, that, that there was a, some growth in this, felt very important, Phil. And... And also a sense that I was somehow serving as well, you know, and that I was maybe, you know, maybe partly because I wasn't able to help my mum and my dad as much as I liked. Maybe I was sort of transferring some of that onto the world and just wanting to serve and help as well somehow. So that was all incredibly important. And that was the happiness stuff. And um, then I created the happiness project. Um we began on the National Health Service um, in 1992, and we created this experiment called the Eight Week Happiness Program. Initially, it wasn't called that, but it was an eight week program. And I discovered that people were enjoyed the fact that I was interested in happiness, you know, um, uh, in fact, in a very recent coaching session I had, Phil, one of the questions I was asking my client essentially was, we did two hours on this, but the question was, how much are you enjoying being you these days? <laughs> okay, that was our question. So how much are you enjoying being you these days? And um, I, what I've learned along the way is that if you're enjoying yourself and really enjoying yourself, people will want to join in. Um, I think we all love it when people are enjoying themselves, you know, I think we we go to see our favorite artists um, Because we watch them enjoying themselves, you know, it, it's um, I, I, The only thing I would say about all of this as well that is I think that this this joy thing um, Can sound rather lyrical and and romantic um, But I would also say it's it's deeply Dare, it's a dare to follow your joy. It, it's uh, it can take you to your knees a lot of on a lot of occasions, and yet it also gives you a resilience to keep going. Um, but uh, for instance, when I when I take the children to school, on the school run, when we get to the school gates, and I say my goodbyes, I often 
uh, get to meet a fellow dad there uh, um, called Craig. He's a music producer. And the chances are he will often have stayed up the night before working on a record for some band, some artist. And I'll ask him how it's going. And the number of times he'll just say, oh, I'm completely lost. You know, he'll say we're just we're pushing around air at the moment, which is his way of saying we're moving the notes around on the on, you know, on the song. But we're pushing around air. We don't even know if we've got a song. And that feeling of being lost in the creative process is something I can definitely relate to. You know, when I'm writing a book, for instance, I often feel lost. I'm never really sure if there even is a next chapter. In fact, often I tell myself I'm going to have to hand in, a, a, um, you know, a three quarters of a book. <laughs> I never quite get to the end. This will have to be the three quarters of a book on happiness. Um, but, you know, so following your joy is a dare. But then, and, and risky, but I think it's also too much of a risk not to follow your joy. So, you know, I, I think if you don't do it, then you lose that sense of aliveness. You lose that connection with your heart. You lose that connection with the, that more authentic you, perhaps. And um, that, that feels a great shame, you know, as well. So, yeah, so the happiness thing is, it came from making a stand that it's possible and that we can do it. And then the love thing, um, you know, one, you know, I found myself talking to people in leadership positions, and I think what I did was, was I began to see that by being when I was being asked to go and work in different organisations, Phil, I. I was often doing quite a lot of keynotes, you know, that typical one hour thought piece. And after a while, what I realized was that, you know, was that one of the functions of a keynote is, is, is to make people think. And my work with success intelligence really was based on that, was making people think, you know, let's rethink success. Let's rethink the way we're doing things. And in a way, I think what I did was I learned in my keynotes to create a license at the beginning of the keynote to say, really, I would say this is what I think a keynote is for. And I think my job is to talk to you in a way that you might not normally be talked to. I think my role is to invite you to think some thoughts you haven't thunk before. Um, or might not have thunk for a while. Um, and and then I, so that was the license. And then I would insert the challenge and the challenge would be, um, and because you're all leaders, um, it's up to you to let me do this. Um, because if you're not willing to think differently, then how's the team going to think differently? How's the organization going to think differently? So that would be something that I would spell out. You know, and then I would say, now, on that note, let me give you something to think about. And I hope that what I give you to think about is a relevant to you um, and and also useful, something that you can do something with. So the keynote was so often my entry into a team, um, whether that was a team working in a company, working in a hospital, working in a school, working in a theatre, working in a government department, 
Um, that was often my first introduction. After that, if they liked the keynote, then they'd say, well, what next? And then I would normally say, well, there's this leadership program we could look at. And well, there's this one-to-one -one coaching that we could look at as well. Um, now, it wasn't that every piece of coaching I've ever done came from the keynote, but a lot of it came from the keynote. Um, and actually, it's one of the reasons, Phil, why when I'm coaching coaches, you know, I, I do often encourage my coaches to be thought leaders and to demonstrate their thought leadership and to do precisely what you're doing, for instance, which is to offer the podcast series, you know, where you get to to share what is meaningful and valuable um, for you. You know, for me, that that demonstrates, you know, something that is inspiring um and, and, and qualifies us as a coach, I think, somehow. You know, that, that what we're demonstrating to the world is that we're actually getting on with our life too. You know, and I do think that's quite important. I think, I think it's nice and reassuring if for those of us who are coaches, I think it is nice and reassuring for our potential clients to know that we are getting on with our life too, that we are trying things, that we're, we're on the edge, if you like, of our own uh, self and we're, we're growing the whole time it's certainly one of the things i love about this work is um it's very much um an interaction with, with everybody we work with it's very much an interaction and we're, we're we're all growing we're all exploring um and developing understanding so there's a there's a lot i could comment on in, in what you've said you remind me of of you know one of your beautiful mind-blowing inquiries actually which i've repeated numerous times with people i've worked with which is um what's it like to be you when you're not trying to be somebody mm -hmm. wow um, and yeah. how freeing and, and liberating that is yeah and, and with that in mind i want to ask you um because i talk to a few coaches and there seems to be a misconception really that because it's not my experience, but there's a misconception that people in corporations, organizations don't want to talk about love. And yet, you know, I know from going through your uh, success intelligence workshop in San Diego a few years ago, ultimately success always comes down to love and happiness for everybody, it seemed, in the room. So what was that like for you? Have you did you encounter resistance in those kind of explorations within organizations? Um, polite resistance, I would say never, um, never more than that, but you know, polite resistance that definitely, um, um, I mean, for instance, if, you know, what, one of the big clients that I worked with was, was Dove and the Real Beauty campaign. Now I was the coach to Silvio Lagnado, the first president of Dove for, I think about three to four years in total, two years while she worked at Dove, but then I moved with her when she got her promotion. But I also coached uh, Fernando Acosta, who was the, um, who, who then followed on from, from Sylvia. All, that's all public knowledge, obviously, so that's why I can talk about that. <laughs> um, but um, just there to say, I mean, you know, the Dove story, Dove and the Real Beauty campaign really came from, in some ways, from Sylvia's desire for a more meaningful career. 
um, for a sense of, of work that was fulfilling and it touched her and it meant something. And she was very, you know, very clear about that. Um, and Success Intelligence, my work with Success Intelligence, which was a small boutique consultancy, there was four or five of us, we were all over that project in so many ways. Keynotes, annual conferences, working with the the main um, global team at Dove. And, you know, one of the things to say is, is that, you know, not everybody at Dove liked um, the idea of the Real Beauty campaign. Nobody disliked it, but not everybody believed in it. Let's put it that way. Not everybody believed it was necessary. And um, I think that's worth noting because I think, you know, that tells us that you don't need um, you don't need everybody to believe what you're about. You just need enough people to believe it. And and if you've got enough, you can you can make a start. Um, now, also, for instance, in, in my work, you know, I I've very explicitly I share with people what I'm interested in. And a lot of people tell me, you know, that's perhaps not so wise if you want to get more work, you know. But my feeling is, is that being as authentic as possible is a great form of marketing in the way, in a way, because um, firstly, A, our goal is never to corner the market um, because the market's too big. So you don't want to corner the market. What you want is, I think, is to attract people in the marketplace who are of like mindedness and who that we can somehow support. And it's a mutual form of support. So, you know, I've tried to be as upfront about what I'm interested in as possible. And in doing that, I know I'm going to leave a lot of people out, but I will also attract some interesting characters, you know, who are going to want to pick up the phone and and then I think, you know, what what people most want in, from a let's talk about a corporate setting for a minute is if I am going to talk about something as way out as love, I think what most people want to know is, is can you do that with your feet on the ground? Yes. Yeah. Can you can you do that in a way where you, you know, do it's like, do you wear shoes and socks or only sandals? Do you know what I mean? It's like and. Uh, and because it, it's that's and I think those are legitimate questions. So I like to think I can find a way to talk about this in a um, grounded sort of way. I think a decent enough question is something like, how much do we love what we're doing right now? That's a nice way to bring love into things. Just that. How much do we love what we're doing right now? How much do our how much do our clients love working with us? Mm. And, you know, I think you can bring love in in that way. One of our, I think, quite interesting projects that we had was with um, Intercontinental Hotel Group. Um, now, this wasn't one of my direct clients at Success Intelligence. This one was managed by another director at Success Intelligence. Um, I did a few keynotes, but essentially it was the other director who did most of the work for this one. Um, but the brief was to sit on the board meetings, which he did, I think, for probably three to four years. And it was to introduce two conversations, conversations about purpose and conversations about love. 
And one of the articulations from the conversations about love that uh, IHG took up was their, their mission statement, which was great hotels that guests love. So they like dared to put the word love into the mission statement, not, you know, great hotels that customers get good value from, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or enjoy staying at, um, but literally love. And there's something about that, you know, which ups the ante and, uh, and it engages the heart. And I think it makes the pulse race a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. it's like, whoa, are we really saying that? Um, because if we're really saying that, then let's not be too corporate about the conversation we're just about to have. You know, it's like you can't really be too, too corporate when it comes to love. And I think there were some amazing conversations that came out of the dare to introduce love into the vocabulary of that particular conversation happening with that board so that's like a practical example if you like of um of of something we were we were doing there is there a typical impact of having those kind of conversations could you typify um yeah what tends to happen within organizations from having those explorations i think i think that the conversation about love belongs initially to leadership um i think that um i think that leadership fundamentally th- this is a, a a challenge i've often handed out to leaders again through the work with success intelligence which is that um leaders are not paid just to be busy they are also paid to think and if leadership is too busy to think then we are in trouble similarly I think that leaders are one of their functions is to be a host to the conversations that most need to happen. Mm. Um, and so many conversations get lost in the busyness, in the hyperactive nature of the culture, in the manic schedules we set for each other. But I do think that every now and then a leader a leader's role is to in, insert a conversation that wouldn't happen without them. And those conversations can be conversations like, how could we love what we do even more around here? Let's talk about that today. Now, to me, that's an incredibly legitimate conversation and hopefully a, a one that would engage not just the intellect, but also the heart as well. Hopefully it would also engage some imagination. Um, it might mean that we have to be brave to have the conversation, but let's do it. Let, let's have a go at that. So that's an example um, of, you know, that leaders introduce conversations that we would otherwise be too busy to have. And I often encourage the people that I'm coaching in leadership positions to look for that conversation. What is the conversation that we're too busy to have right now? What's the conversation we're afraid of having? Because if we addressed it, it would somehow mean there's, you know, it would be almost too big to handle, you know, that sort of conversation. But also more, more interestingly, perhaps not, not interestingly, maybe more um, imaginatively, more creatively to introduce conversations like how could we love what we do 
you know, more. And that I think is a is a just a great opportunity. Yeah, beautiful. You know, anybody that uh, listens to your radio show, Robert, will know one of your very common questions that you ask most people who call in is, "Do you have a, a daily spiritual?" practice <laughs> yes um and i i guess i have two things here i'm curious really about yours and i've heard you talk about it before i kind of wonder to what extent does tea coffee or wine play a part in any of that but actually my serious question is is how does that help you and the secondary question is do you ever encourage that practice take that into organizations yeah so well, again, just to give a very practical example, I'm coaching somebody at the moment who is an entrepreneur in the field of um, um, essentially looking, up, looking after people's investments. Um, I think he has somewhere in the region, he has a portfolio of, I think somewhere in the region of about 50 million US dollars to 100 million US dollars. Most of the money gets invested in real estate and essentially in managing people's uh, uh, um, either mortgages or, or rental agreements, that type of thing. Um, his homework at the moment is to transform his business into a love-based business. Um, one of the reasons why this is his homework is because at the moment he's busy trying to be two people. He's trying to be the person he is at home as well as the person he is at work. And the two people are very different. And so he's really only able to spend 50% of his time being the person he'd like to be. And then 50% of the time he has to be somebody else. Except, of course, work tends to take in more than 50%. And worse than that, the effort that it takes to do that to do that at work means, let's say, the 30% that he does at home isn't great quality. I mean, you know, it's tiring not being yourself. Yeah. It's tiring having to justify why you can't bring your heart into work yet again today. It's a very tiring thing to have to do. It takes its toll. So he would like to be the same person at work and the same person at, um, at home. And I think it would be good for his marriage and I think it would be good for his own own mental health. And he recognizes that and all credit to him. If he didn't recognize that, he wouldn't want to be coached by me, that's for sure. So he's he's already, you know, a brave, brave person. Um, now, when I suggested to him that he might like to create a love based business, I mean, his response, which we've both laughed about ever since, was fabulous. He gave he gave the most wonderful three-minute speech on why his business of all businesses on the planet has absolutely no room for anything <laughs> whatsoever because it's fundamentally finance financial transactions um but nonetheless the homework was um let's think about a way that you could you know run a love-based business today one way so one way each day, and here's the key to your question about the spiritual practice. The spiritual practice was to ask love to show him how to do it. Okay, so you here it's like fundamentally this is why my model is a model of spirituality and psychology because I think at some point psychology can only 
can only reach a certain altitude before it runs out of oxygen and passes out. <laughs> you know, and we run out of ideas. We don't know what else to do. Uh, whereas spirituality, I think it there's a it has its own flight pattern and its own altitude, which actually supports our psychology. So here, the spiritual thing to do was to sit each morning and ask love in the knowledge that love is intelligent, and this is key, that love is intelligent and love knows how to love. How could I make a commit, make a contribution today to running a love-based business? And, you know, it's early days, but for instance, um, it, it, he is beginning to recognize that saying good morning to his secretary in the morning is a pretty good thing to do and that it counts and it has an effect. Um, you know, so things like that are, you know, that's a very, that he's done far more than that since, but that was one of the first things he said to me, you know? Um, so that's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, on another day, he told me that he'd fixed the water cooler and the water cooler hadn't been working for a, like a long time. So, you know, the, the, the team had been bringing in bottles of water. It's like, no, no, let's look after that. We're important. We deserve, you know, we deserve some water every now and then. I mean, these things, you know, did it. It's like, but it's a start. It's a start and it's a sign of, look, I, we're important. I care enough to get this done today. So we can, we can, let's stop looking at the spreadsheet for a bit and look after ourselves here. That's how I think we start to create a love-based business. So in other words, we create a love-based business by being more present. We, we create a love-based by bringing more of our, ourselves into, into the work. And now, hopefully what happens is we get, we bring more of ourselves into it as we drop the role. And I think that's the key. Sometimes you have to be willing to drop the role. And if you drop the role, you know, then then you can do it. And then you can do it. And uh, and the other thing I would say about love is is if if you if you go for it, you in most settings you're going to stand out as really as a pretty amazing leader. I mean, truly amazing leader. There's somebody who I been coaching for around about eight years now actually and and in fact um he's just about to now leave um the role he's in um which is out in vietnam he's coming back to london and um you know one of the big struggles he has at the moment is that is the amount of leaving dues that that's been requested for him um i mean it's, it's a lot you know, he said, Robert, it's like if I if I really put them all in, you know, it's like there'd be no I'd never get around to the next job, you know, which is within the same company. So he's got a he's got a promotion. But, um, you know, and, and funny enough, this was just this morning. I was saying to him, well, you, I'm sorry, but you're just going to have to suck this one up <laughs> because, you know, people need to express their love. Yeah, I had this come up with a client actually just last week. He had a realization that part of loving is to allow people to express their love for us. Beautiful. There we go. That's exactly the territory of of my client right now. He's he's got a. It, it, this is all his fault. He's got to. He's you know he's got to let people ex express their love. Absolutely. Yeah, beautiful, Robert. Yeah. I want to I want to honour your time and and that of our listeners. So 
thank you very much flown flown by just in summary look for anybody that that follows your work what's that one thing you want them to know to completely embody Mm, that's a great question phil um well i think i think it is to trust that love is intelligent and that you know love love is clearly so much more than just a word or a feeling or an idea when you really give love a chance i think you do find that you are in communication with an aspect of your mind that that is intelligent and that will that that's deeply inspiring um and and I think we can afford to do this. I like often like to say, you know, life is all about love. And even when it isn't, it still is really. Because that's true. You know, it is the great primary drive of our life. Of that, I am absolutely convinced. So I would say if ever you're looking at love, rest assured you are not wasting your time. Be aware that you are engaged in a inquiry or a conversation that is as relevant as anything ever can be in this world. Perfect, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. It's my complete pleasure, Phil. This has been an absolute joy. I, I've been looking forward to our conversation for as long as we had it all set up, and simply because I knew that it would be um, a living conversation, and I'm really grateful to to have had the chance to speak like this with you thank you thank you Robert. how about that what an amazing conversation with robert and certainly useful and insightful in exploring and hearing how he talks about love and happiness with his clients and with organizations i love the simplicity of some of the questions he's used and uses in talking with people such as how much do we love what we're doing now and how much do our clients love working with us beautifully simple um, what a great starting point they are in having these kind of conversations he spoke about how following your joy is a dare it is risky it can bring us to our knees but also it's too much of a risk not to follow our joy to lose um, that sense of aliveness our connection with our heart and our connection with our authentic self I also thought it was a great reminder that we don't need everyone to believe what we're about. Just enough people to believe it in an organization and from there we can make a start at again having these kind of conversations. He spoke about sharing what he's interested in, being authentic as possible and how that's a great form of marketing and perhaps this is one of my greatest lessons from Robert. I love that question. I've used it time and time again, you know, what's it like to be you when you're not trying to be somebody? And finally, perhaps my greatest lesson from Robert is how love is an intelligence, how we can use love as our guiding wisdom in creating a love-based business and 
you know i loved how he explored taking those kind of inquiries into our daily spiritual practices even exploring that with his clients i hope you've enjoyed this one as much as i have recording it and producing it this whole subject of love and leadership is very dear to me and something that i love to explore in depth with my clients if you've enjoyed this one please head on over to itunes take 30 seconds to a minute to leave a, a brief honest review it will help other people find this podcast too it makes such a difference and i'd love to hear any feedback you have about this episode or any of the others I've got some more great guests coming up so keep listening and sharing with your friends and your colleagues thanks once again for listening and as always i wish you much love and joy Thank you.